Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the fourth TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. The action is coming at us from all angles, and the last 24 hours of football certainly didn't disappoint. From the Netherlands leaving it late to beat a Sadio Mane in Senegal, to Kiefer Moore turning Wales' withering fortunes on its head, to Saudi Arabia pulling off one of the greatest upsets in the tournament's history by beating an awkward Argentina. The competition is not failing us yet in terms of the on-field action. In this episode, the ever-wonderful and analytical TFA analysts David Estill and Brian Marquez join Velez Club de Football's chief scout Lee Scott and myself to break down Netherlands' win over Senegal, the draw between the USA and Wales, Saudi Arabia's gargantuan victory over Lionel Messi's flat Argentina, and finally, Denmark's goalless draw with Tunisia. This is an action-packed episode and not to be missed. So without further ado, let's go speak to our guest. Lee, David, Brian, thanks for joining me on the podcast yet again. The first game we'll cover is Senegal and the Netherlands. I was when we actually previewed the game, I was really excited to watch it because I think tactically it's it's it was it looked like quite an interesting game. There's obviously a lot of wonderful players. Of course, Senegal didn't have Sadio Mane, and I was left a, a little bit disappointed. I feel by the overall display from both sides. I think it was quite lethargic. There was massive spells of the game where genuinely it was so unmemorable. Um, yeah, so I, I was quite disappointed. Senegal had a lot of chances. I think I, I put a tweet out actually. Oh, sorry, it's going out today at five scheduled about Senegal's XG map. They had 14 shots. And I know uh, Nopperton Goal had a wonderful debut for, for the Netherlands, but... Senegal really struggled to score. Their XG average, I think, per shot was 0.06, which is I mean, means they were shooting at really poor locations. Maybe having Mane in the side in hindsight, if he wasn't injured, would have helped them convert. But again, you know, that's just hindsight. Hindsight twenty twenty. They didn't score in the end. Then I think it was the eighty fourth minute. De Jong played that just beautiful ball into Cody Gakpo, who headed past Edward Mendy and then David Klaassen followed up another rebound for the second goal to take it all three points. Lee, I'll come to you first. Did you see anything tactically interesting from this game, especially, I suppose, the midfield battle? We spoke about that before, I think it was two days ago, when we previewed the match about how important that would be. And it, it, it was interesting enough, especially Netherlands gone man for man in the press. Yeah, I think that for the most part, what really stood out to me was that I think Van Hal was at his pragmatic best for the most part. For the talent that the Netherlands have, you kind of expect them to be a little bit more offensive, a little bit more direct when they're attacking play. But instead, they were just so risk-averse for large parts of the game. And part of that was because of the Senegal defensive block. The way that Senegal played in transition, they were very, very quick to close down, get tight and get compact around the ball in transition whether that happened in their attacking third, the middle third, or their defensive third. They, they didn't immediately drop back into a deep block. Obviously, it helps when you have the pace of a Koulibaly in the defensive line. Any ball over the top, Vincent Jansen, who I still scratching my brain for exactly why he thought that was a great idea to start Vincent Jansen in this game. He was just in Koulibaly's pocket for the whole match. But I think in the midfield, De Jong struggled to really carry the ball as effectively as we sometimes see. Often when you see De Jong at his best, he'll pick up possession deep and drive through the midfield. And that's part of what makes him such an effective player. But in this match, Senegal were very physical, very quick to get around the ball, get challenges and make contact. 
And I think that disrupted the Dutch build-up quite a lot, at least until in the second half when they made their attacking changes as Senegal got tired. But I think we really see the, the issues with the, the Netherlands system going with a three at the back. When if you go to three at the back, you need to be quicker moving the ball from back to front or else the game gets bogged down in the middle. And the Netherlands weren't doing that. De Ligt looked like he was isolated time and time again. I think he had. he's going to have nightmares about his malice. Well, actually, just speaking of De Ligt, I just want to read a quote really quickly. He spoke uh, maybe out against Van Gaal. I don't know. It might have been taken out of context, but his, his the quote is very... Um, well, I mean, he didn't seem overly happy with his role in the side. And he said, maybe someone like Timur is more suited for the role Van Gaal is demanding. I'm not a right back, but today I had to play as a right back. This was different for me, especially because at Bayern, I play from the left. Especially against a winger, it's difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the problem with the back three. In a back three system, it's incredibly important that your wide centre-backs are comfortable defending isolated white. De Ligt is a very good defender, a very physically capable defender, but he's much more comfortable defending the width of the penalty area. As soon as he was isolated against Alexis Saar, Saar was getting joy all day, going to step overs, going left, going right, taking them on and trying to be direct. And De Ligt found it difficult. I think that he has a point. Um, I was surprised Julian Timber wasn't, you know, included and, and didn't come into this game at any point for Holland. He, he's somebody I would have in the starting lineup for Holland. But for whatever reason, Van Hal doesn't like him that much. I think that a back four system with three in midfield would suit the Netherlands much better, which is funnily enough what I've just witnessed watching Denmark play. And I know we're going to get to Denmark, but they were the same back three system. There, there was no thought on how they were going to build and play. Netherlands felt the same way. But I think Senegal, you spoke about how many shots they generated, and that was interesting, but a lot of their shots came from those situations. Yeah. Star was one-on-one, creating danger, cutting inside, getting shots away, or other players doing the same thing. They, they didn't create anything clean, if you like. So for all, the Dutch did have problems defensively in that back three. Senegal never really looked like they were going to create anything big. And quite a lot of their chances came outside the box. I think roughly about half of them were outside the area, which again... Yeah. When you look at your average XG per shot, the the, the shot locations, the, the reason why the, the numbers are so poor was because outside the area is just obviously, of course, a lesser chance of of going in the net. Bryant, talk to me about Senegal's lack of potency up front then. And how do you think they can look to rectify that going forward now, obviously, against Qatar and, and, and Ecuador? I mean, I really like what Senegal did in transitions, but... Luckily for Netherlands, it wasn't the best and the most dangerous player who commanded it. I mean, Saar didn't look quite uh, active in these situations. It was more Diara or Bulayadia who picked the ball up and and run forward. So I think when Ismail Saar grabbed the ball and go into 1v1 situations against Delict or Dumfries, wide going inside. He was very, very good. He had a really good game. He nearly scored a brilliant goal, I think, that it was blocked in the in the penalty area. So I really like what Senegal did in the game. A 4-1-4-1 in their their defensive shape. That's what that was the setup, trying to block the Players behind them, that is Gakpo or Bergwijn, who normally drops deep, and he didn't 
that constantly in this game. So I was surprised by the separation between the lines of Netherlands. You know, the midfielders couldn't find the more advanced players. Bergis was playing a bit more higher and the young and him wasn't connecting that well. So, and uh, the league positioning, I, I don't think he's, he's the man to, to, to play in that role. Uh, we said in the podcast two days ago, I think, previewing this match, that we think role, uh, Timber's role there will be uh, very good for mm-hmm. for Netherlands in the build-up. So Senegal blocked all the way through the central areas. Uh, it was a physical battle in the midfield. They win the ball back and they executed uh, quickly to their wingers or to their center forward, who was Dia, who's a very quick player, physically to pull into the ball. And I think the, there was kind of situations when you said you, you saw it and you said they miss money because uh, the way they commanded it and decide on what to do on the transitions. I think a, a man like Manny and his leadership and experience will definitely make better. But this is the way Senegal had to play. I mean, it was a massive game from Nampalis Mendy winning the ball back, mm. uh, Kuyate and Ganagay. And uh, basically on the ball, it, it, they were direct and Netherlands were uh, looking fragile. Even Van Dijk in some situations didn't look like the beast defender he is, the, the tough defender he is. And they have kind of problems with this run runs in behind. Luckily for them, again, it wasn't that dangerous. And it, it, it Senegal couldn't quite finish their plays. They were running and they were attacking spaces. But it, when they have to do the last pass or the last shot or take a, de- a decision to score, they didn't quite do it that good. I mean, I think they have to keep working. They have a very good team. I was uh, generally surprised by their performance and how I think the the biggest surprise for me and shock was the performance of Nampalis Mendy as a number six. He was absolutely great in that role and that position. I think Senegal, if they keep working on transitions more to to Ismail Azar with with his pace, and the threat he he drives in, inside his game. I mean, they could totally wrap up three points against Ecuador and Qatar and and qualify for the next phase. I agree. I think the game was there for the taking for Senegal, but they couldn't convert the chances. And ultimately, then Netherlands showed their quality. Of course, with the young play and that pass was. An unbelievable ball over the top of the defence. But we'll move on to last night's game between the USA and Wales. And David, I'll throw to you on this. I was, I mean, in our preview, we spoke about Kiefer Moore and about how incredibly is Lee. You spoke about how wonderful Kiefer Moore is as a player because of his, he's almost a throwback to an, you know, an old school centre forward and he's all elbows, but he's also decent with the ball at his feet as well. He's wonderful in the air. I think he's six foot six. When the lineup was announced, David, were you surprised to see Daniel James as the nine? I was. Uh, I was very surprised. I mean, I listened to Rob Page's reasons for starting uh, James and Wilson as the as a front two, and he said he wanted pace rather than sort of like an out and out striker. He wanted mm-hmm. he wanted to be able to hit USA with pace at the back. And in the first half, it didn't really work because even though it did have the pace, you know, both Dan James and and Harry Wilson, both very quick players, um, they didn't have that goal threat. 
And you could see that actually the USA are a very robust, strong team when the when the ball is in front of them and you know they're not having to run back towards their own goal. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I did the preview for the magazine and that's what I saw is that actually when the ball is in front of them, they are very comfortable at setting up, organising themselves. Um, and, you know, that that for me, that lineup that Wales had yesterday it was exactly what the USA want to see. Hence why in that first half, Wales were, you know, they lacked any kind of potency. Um, but in the second half, I thought when Keith Moore came on, Wales had a completely different outlook. They ran the USA ragged, started to, um, to cut holes in them. Um, I, th- I thought Keith Moore really did make a difference. Um, Gareth Bale obviously did get the penalty, but yeah, Keith Moore was the match uh, changer for me. Um, so yeah, I was surprised not to see him in the lineup because of what I know he can bring. He's that aerial presence um, for you know to uh, to target with it with long balls up the pitch. Um, as you said, he's very good at, with the ball at his feet as well. He's obviously a very good goal scorer. Um, so yeah, for me, he was the one who came on and changed the game, and I was surprised he didn't start. I feel like they weren't. Yeah, you're right, but I feel like they weren't challenged either by Daniel James. And I understand Rob mm-hmm. Page's reasoning. I know that when they win the ball, they want to go in behind Daniel James. He is lightning quick. People who watch watch them at Manchester United at, at, at Leeds or at Fulham will know or at international level, he is genuinely lightning quick. But he didn't pose any sort of a threat to the US. It was it was, it was surprising, whereas Kiefer Moore is, is, is such a handful. And mm-hmm. if you look at the, the statistics in, the, in terms of the balance of play from, I think it was, uh, I think the metric might be XG, I'm not too sure on that, but from the 45th minute onwards and how many chances Wales created, it was, it was clear as day that Kiefer Moore was the game changer when he came on. So at least Rob Page did recognise that he brought it on, or he brought Moore on um, relatively early, I suppose, you know, half-time, which is fine. And it did change the game. And then, of course, they went on to to score a penalty in the end and, and grab a draw after 20-odd minutes of added time, <laughs> which is a common theme throughout this World Cup so far. Lee, I was, I was quite surprised, especially in the first half by the U.S., I thought defen- or defensively when they were pressing Wales high, they were really good. Wales really struggled with that high press. And then in possession, they looked pretty decent too. They were creating those wide overloads, obviously a wide to try and break down that, that Welsh low block. Talk to me about their performance then yesterday. Yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised as well. And I think that, that as you just touched upon, the fact that they were so aggressive out of possession in the counter press for, and when Wales did win the ball back or had the ball in their own third, I think that's part of the reason that Dan James wasn't effective. I think the game plan for Wales would have been to play long balls and transition into the channels to try and catch the, the American fullbacks out of position. And that's where Dan James becomes a weapon. If he's able to run into those kind of passes, then he's pulling Tim Ream, for example, out of slot and, and that can create all kinds of danger. But because the US were so aggressive and so effective, and blocking those passes, winning the ball back, getting right into the face of the Welsh players. Wales were struggling to connect a pass for the first 10, 15, 20 minutes. They just couldn't get the ball properly. They couldn't have a chain of possession beyond four passes for a period of time. And I think that, in a large part, is down to the work rate of the Americans. I think Weston McKenney has his has his detractors, and I don't think I would have him in a midfield if I was in charge, but he is very, very effective off the ball, the way that he gets forward, supports the strikers in the press and really makes that second man in the press to make it difficult for the opposition to play through. But in possession, America also impressed in that first the first half. The rotations that you touched upon, the wide central midfielders 
were coming out wide and inter and rotating around with like the Pulisic especially coming inside into half spaces. And what the US did really, really well is occupy those half spaces with Pulisic, with Weah, with the central midfielders pushing forward. Even Serginho Dest at one point was occupying the half spaces really well. And as soon as you did that to Wales, because they were playing the back five system that we talked about when we talked about this game before, it became really difficult for the Welsh midfield to, to really have the same effect on the US that the US were able to have in Wales, if you like, in possession. The Wales just couldn't get up, they couldn't press in their face, and the US ended up having a lot of comfortable possession. And I think you saw from the first goal, the Tim Weah goal, that that's the kind of freedom attack that the US were looking to looking to create when you have Pulisic driving diagonally inside with the ball. And then a, a forward run on the next level from Tim Weah almost matching the diagonal run the opposite direction, if you like. It's very, very simple. When you look at it like that, if you map the goal out, the runs are very simple. But they're very effective against a defence that was quite slow and cumbersome, at least in the first half. I think that, that they couldn't really match the dynamism of the US, and that's something I didn't necessarily expect to see. But of course, Kiefer Moore coming on completely changed the game, and not just because he was a threat in the air. He terrified the US with his ability to get on the ball and he was bringing the, the, the wing-backs into play eventually for Wales and suddenly we saw the, the effect the wing-backs can have. And then obviously the US were under more and more pressure. And he also nearly grabbed an assist from an incredible back heel holding the ball up. And I, think, I don't think it went through the player's legs, but it was certainly, a, again, a wonderful back heel to set Brennan Johnson away. His finish was at a tight angle and it wasn't the, it wasn't the best anyway. And of course, Timothy Weah, the first player to score against Wales in the World Cup since Pele in 1958. We'll move on now to Argentina and Saudi Arabia. I would argue it's definitely one of the biggest upsets in, in World Cup history, certainly in recent history anyway. I was shocked by the result. Um, David, you tweeted out during the game, or it might have just been slightly after it, about how you thought Argentina maybe weren't as bad as the, the, the result suggests, but they lacked end product. Is that right, or can you can you elaborate on why you think that maybe they were unfortunate? Yeah, I mean, unfortunate probably is is not the right word. I mean, they deserve to lose. They were second best on the mm-hmm. day. Saudi Arabia were excellent. Let's just say that first. They were excellent, deserved to win. But what I what I meant in that tweet is essentially I thought Argentina's build up play wasn't too bad. They were they were moving the ball around quite well. Wing back, uh, sorry, the fullbacks were getting quite high up the field. Um, certainly in the second half, they looked to be getting more numbers forward. But what I thought they lacked in was that final cross, that final pass, that final shot. I mean, how many times did Di Maria get into a good position where he was going to cross the ball and no one was making a run into the, into the box? Or, you know, on, on the upside, Acuna came on, uh, came on. And how many times did he look to get a, cr- a cross in and no one's making a run? Or you got those times where someone was making a run, but then the effort was just too tame and it was very easy for, um, I can't remember the... Uh, goalkeeper's name um but to, you know he made a very very easy save so that's what I meant in that tweet is that yes they obviously lost the game deserved to but what really let them down for me was that final end product and I think part of that was the fact that Messi was dropping back a lot more in the second half dropping back in sort of midfield areas which then allowed the, the fullbacks to get forward I think for me that didn't suit him we, we, we want to see him in those advanced areas um, he did have one really good chance, which he, which he headed straight to the keeper. But for me, he didn't do enough of that in the second half. Um, Alvarez had a much much bigger impact. He went through the lines much better. 
um, broke through the Saudi Arabia uh, defense line, as I said, and, and he could have scored. But I mean, the other the other thing to add to that is the offsides. I mean, how many offsides did Argentina have in that game? So had they timed those runs better, they probably could have scored two or three, um, or certainly had better chances. So that's that's what I meant. For me, the build-up play was brilliant. It was the final third bit that really let them down. Were you surprised by the admission of Lissandro Martinez then, because obviously he's playing so well this year? And then you spoke about how Messi had to drop so deep and to almost be a, I don't like using this term, but kind of like a, a quarterback role. And again, I don't like using the term in football, but I suppose it's the best way to describe it at the minute. Do you think that maybe Lissandro Martinez might have been able to help them with that ball progression so Messi could push forward into advanced areas? Do you think it was a midfield problem? Um, no, I, th- I think you're right. I think having Martinez on, on the pitch, he is a good ball-playing defender. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he would have definitely helped. To he created more clinical chances than any other player on the pitch yeah. when he came on, which was quite... Yeah, he did. And that, and that really shows, you know, had he been on the pitch at the start, you know, Messi would have had uh, a few more chances. They would have perhaps got a few more, a bit more accuracy. It was just a case of general untidiness from them. It was it was a little, errors at the back. Um, the midfield was okay. It, the final that I've spoken about, it was just a, the general balance and the way they went about it just didn't seem to work. So I think that was the reason they lost. Is it's just general untidiness and that lack of end product. So, I mean, if, if it's, it is a, a disaster in terms of the result, but actually if you look at the overall performance, it's just a case of tidying up those little bits and maybe mm-hmm. putting a different per- person in a different role. And then maybe they, they might still make it through. I mean, there are still two games left. It is, you know, we, we do need to remember that. But, you know, it's, it's a disaster in terms of the results and certainly the magnetism of the result, but actually performance there are some positives in there that they can take and build on. Well, they'll probably have to get six points out of six in the next two matches if they are to qualify. Bryant, we spoke about Argentina. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia. What a performance. Heroic, some might say. Yeah, I may say wow to that performance. It wasn't that kind of performance from an underdog team that... They go deep and wait to counterattack. And no, they were like high line, um, high pressing at some moments, a really high pressing. And it surprised me a lot. It surprised me a lot. The sonar marking. I mean, when you play on a high line and a high block, you want to go man marking. And they were try- mixing between. The sonar marking and the man marking, and it was absolutely great from Saudi Arabia. They were miles off better than Argentina. That could, couldn't like progress through the midfielders. They were too separated off the defensive line, and that was when Martinez uh, entered the pitch. The, the game kind of changed because of. He's a progression abilities, but man, Saudi Arabia, I mean, the mentality you, you have to, to have and go out there and come back from a 1-0 against Argentina, who they are in a bad team. They are in the team that we have seen before in the World Cups or Copa America when tactically they weren't interesting. They, they are a really good team, you know, I mean... Argentina missed some principles of their game in, in this match, but it was totally deserved and totally because of what Saudi Arabia did on the pitch. I, I mean, uh, the manager, I didn't hear about him. So the manager, uh, the manager was sacked from Cambridge United in 2004. 
Harvey Renard, and now he is <laughs> have to beat in Argentina. I think he ended their three yeah. year three year unbeaten run. Um, just speaking on actually touching on the point I just mentioned there, Lucas was on a few days ago to preview the tournament. He made a point, Lee, if you'll remember this, that he believes Argentina and Brazil might struggle more than people think because of their yeah. lack of, uh, I suppose, the, the the quality of opposition they've played the last couple of years. Their last competitive yeah. game they've had was against Brazil in the Copa America final in 2021. And all of a sudden, first game, they lose to a, a much weaker, I think it's fair to say, Saudi Arabia team. Yeah, totally. And I mean, Saudi Arabia, the the preview, I, I read about them and they were an interesting team. Tactically, I read about their high pressing and high block, but I didn't expect this against Argentina. It was a, a really tough to think about a manager of this kind of teams going out and saying their players, we're going to press high Argentina and we're going to win this game in a high block. Being brave, being confident, that is massive. I, I, I mean, he won the, the African Cup of Nations with Zambia uh, the 2012 against Ivory Coast, I think, when they were at their He's prime. the first ever manager to win two African Cup of Nations, I believe, with so two different Yeah, countries. yeah, yeah. He, Three years later, after yeah. that, he win it with uh, Ivory Coast. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely great to see these kind of matches. I mean, this is where the World Cup begins for me because, you know, these kinds of off- upsets and underdogs team playing that well and being that brave, it's awesome. It's really, really good for me. I, I think Argentina lack their principle of getting lots of players close to the ball they were too wide open, too separated the midfielders with the defensive line, with the wide players. Messi was too advanced at some situations, too close to the midfield and, and defense. So uh, I think they lack that kind of principles that made them play even better. But I generally think they're going to come back after this. Uh, Messi and Scaloni mm-hmm. said after the match that they were mentally strong to come back this. So I think when you have a player like Messi that is growing year by year and his leadership uh, skills that were vastly criticized in the past and now he's doing this. I, I mean, I think they're going to progress, but this is a, I, this is a knock on the head for them. Really? Definitely. Well, I mean, in, in 2018, Saudi Arabia, I think, finished third in the group. They only won one game, which is against Egypt, who finished bottom in a group that also had Russia in it as well. And uh, Uruguay, I believe. This time, all they need is one more win, and they should be able to progress to the knockout phase, which is absolutely huge, because they are, I, I would argue, the favourites to finish bottom of this group, which is a relatively difficult um group for them so full credit to, to Harvey Renard and his side that he's clearly a wonderful manager tactically and, and they fully deserve the win but we'll move on now to the final game we're going to tactically review Lee I'll throw it to you on this I was looking forward to watching Tunisia because their games are not as widely available to the general public around Europe as as, as most European teams are like Denmark I've seen Denmark a million times in the last couple of years not only from the UEFA Nations League, but from the Euros, the World Cup, etc. I was really excited to see Tunisia. Um, the last time I watched them was about a year ago, I think, in the the Arab Cup final, I believe. I cannot remember now if they won or not. But I, I think with the extra time. But anyway, 
I was very pleasantly surprised. They 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 were pretty good. They look good on the break as well. How do you think? Why do you think Denmark struggled? Because I I think Denmark did struggle quite a lot. I was quite surprised by how poor they looked. Yeah, same. I think that I'm like you. I've seen a lot of Denmark over the last couple of years. They were in Scotland's qualifying group. Seen them up close. I think they had the same problem the Netherlands did in terms of ball progression from a back three. They had a back three, then in front of that, you started with Thomas Delaney and Pierre Hoiberg. I love Hoiberg, but he's not a ball progressor. I think Joachim Anderson, the Crystal Palace defender, is probably their best passer from that five. And I think that's really where they fell down in the first parts of the game. With Christian Eriksen essentially playing inverted from the left side of the attack, there was nobody to get on the ball and move the ball effectively for Denmark. And Tunisia took advantage of that. They were very, very quick and very aggressive in their press, especially from the front. I think their front three matched up the, the Denmark three at the back and they pressed them man-to-man and worked very hard across the front line to prevent ball progression. And I think that was kind of the key for Denmark not performing well. It wasn't until there was a, it got a little bit better when Delaney had to go off for half-time and Eriksen dropped back in that role. He's obviously an elite ball progressor, progressor and somebody you need there. But then it wasn't until they went to four at the back in the 68th minute that you really saw them start to pull the screws a little bit in Tunisia. As Tunisia got tired from that point, with a three in midfield of Matthias Jensen coming in, suddenly they were able to create superiorities and overloads in the central area. And as soon as they did that, Denmark started to create more chances. But I was really impressed with Tunisia too. Yeah, they were excellent. And I think, as I said, there was numerous chances where they got in behind Denmark's back line and then Kasper Schmeichel especially pulled off one wonderful save, genuinely an incredible save. I think Tunisia could have taken three points there easily. I, I worry for Denmark a little bit now because they'll have some difficult games coming up. Notably, the champions that you know they have to play also. So it was a big, it was a big point for Tunisia. I feel like it was a point gain for Tunisia and two points dropped for Denmark. I think is probably my my assessment of that. I want to ask um, one question before we wrap up, though, because it is topical at the minute, Dave. I'll throw to you on this. This the stoppage time being added on. It's very clear that it's been a strategy thrown out there by FIFA to avoid time wasting while I do agree with the sentiment it seems quite messy do you agree with that or do you think that or do you believe there's a better way of of doing things do you think that it's maybe not the best route to go down I I think I was a bit confused at the start thinking where's all this time coming from then then it was mentioned that it's because of time wasting and you think actually that's not a bad way to go about it just to, to stop time wasting you know, effectively saying, well, that's fine if you're going to kill two minutes holding the ball up or pretending you're injured just to lie on the ground for two minutes, I'll add two minutes on at the end. I don't think that's a bad way to go about it. Um, what I'm slightly, slightly concerned about is that the more we do this, the more it's going to put a strain on players' bodies because they're, suddenly they're not playing, you know, 94 minutes. They're asked, being asked to play, you know, in England's case, almost two hours, admittedly with a break in between. But, you know, when you're playing two hours, you know, give or take a bit, here and there, um, you know, fairly constantly, it starts to put strain on and that could lead to serious injuries. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, we've seen in, in the Premier League how just crammed games in to try and, and and fit the World Cup, if you like. And I think if we're cramming those games in, but each game then has effectively an extra 10, 15 minutes added on, suddenly you're asking players to play an awful lot of football in a very short space of time. 
and you know recovery times are really important if we keep adding all this time on are we going to get that same amount of recovery time so i think that the principle about it is very very good but what i worry about now is how, what's the effect going to be on the players bodies and therefore their performance and you know then effectively how many injuries are we going to get because they're now playing more football mm. but i don't know what everyone else thinks that that's just what i've thought well about. i have a tweet here from liam henshaw which many people will know he tweeted out that 78 minutes of additional time uh, across the five world cup games so far that was before i believe the denmark tunisia game he said that's 15 minutes additional time per game at this rate there will be the equivalent of 11 extra games by the end of the tournament lee do you think this is FIFA's way of, of, of and I know they're, they're, they're trialing this, of bringing in a stop clock, 60 minutes, stop the clock when the ball's out of play. Roughly the game, the ball's only in play for maybe 55 minutes per match anyway. Do you think this is their way of trialing that? I don't think it'd go that far. And I don't think that the World Cup would be the place to try out something like this. I know FIFA came out and said that they had something similar in place for the, the World Cup four years ago in Russia, but the numbers just went at the start. They were extended compared to what we normally see within week-to-week football, there was more injury time. But it certainly wasn't the levels that it has been so far in this tournament. Um, I think this is FIFA's typical way of perhaps going around finding a solution to a real problem, but doing so in a haphazard way and just not thinking things through properly. Um, Watching a lot of football in Scotland, for example, in the SPFL, this is something that's sorely needed because there are teams that as soon as they go one nil up, they'll stop playing and there'll just be goalkeepers walking across the six-yard box three or four times to take goal kicks as opposed to just taking a goal kick from the side that the ball goes out. I think that we do need a way to crack down on that. I don't know if you, you watched the, the game on ITV um, when the, the goalkeeper accidentally collided with his knee with the defender's head. The commentators initially straight away went to, oh, this is time-wasting until they saw the replay and saw just how serious a collision that was. And that's just the psyche that everyone has around football, that teams will time waste. So there has to be a solution to that. And it might be that we need to get to a point where we are doing something like this to combat that. But whether that then just extends the time as it is now, or whether teams and players adjust the way they try to time waste and we kind of see a regression back towards 90 minutes again, I'm not sure. Um, it's just... It, feels a bit strange and certainly somebody who uses a lot of data, this is going to play havoc with per 90 data. You're, you're suddenly looking at per 105 data, per 107 data, which completely changes the way that you think about things, um, just in some games. I mean, I think every game so far, we've seen at least one good chance in injury time. So that's one piece of XG, one shot, one save, one tackle, whatever it is that you wouldn't have had normally. And, and as the excitement slightly, but it does feel slightly jarring when you see the board go up and it's eight or nine minutes. Yeah, and I agree. And I actually didn't think about the per 90 metric, so that's a really good point. But I also believe that right now it seems it seems okay and it seems logical and plausible in tournament football when there's this festival football on, there's an hour break between the matches and you can kind of afford that. My worry is then when you get to the Premier League, when you get the TV scheduling and there's programs on afterwards and then you have you know Champions League games run until after 11 and it just, it just doesn't seem logical to me for this to be a, a, a well a plausible method to continue throughout club football also you know okay in a tournament fine but can you bring this into the Premier League the Champions League I don't believe you can so I think they are going to have to find a way to make this less messy guys we'll wrap up the podcast there because we're a couple of minutes over time Lee, David, Brian thank you so much for joining me today I really enjoyed this chat to all the listeners make sure you join us again tomorrow as we review 
the games between Mexico and Poland, France and Australia, Morocco and Croatia, and Germany and Japan in another can't-miss episode. Goodbye for now.